Welcome to Life and Leadership. I believe in creating community, connections, and creating space to be curious. This podcast aims to take you on a conscious journey through quality, diverse, innovative content and conversation. My hope is that we create a circle of influence, a transcendency of compassionate leadership in the world and wider universe. This is the moment for people of good conscience and values to align. Renee Kemp, an Emmy Award-winning television journalist and PBS radio talk show host, lives in the San Francisco Bay Area. Renee's focus for her over 20-plus year career has been on producing and reporting on international issues. Her special focus is on Africa. She served as a general manager of Bermuda's first public television outlet at the request of the island's premier. Renee currently acts as a fill-in host for Your Call on San Francisco PBS radio station KALW. Her non-journalist endeavours include providing media literacy training to corporate executives and first responders. She teaches courses in crisis communication at California Polytechnic Institute. Welcome, Renee. I appreciate you. You're a journalist who has a sense of objectivity. Thank you for all you bring to the world. Welcome to today's episode. I have with me Renee Kemp, and she is one of my favorite pioneers, one of my heroes in the media space. Renee, welcome today, and I'd love for you to share with us what you wanted to be when you grow up. You know what? Anytime I get a chance to uh, look back on the formative years of my life, it's a wonderful thing. What's the old saying? An unexamined life is not worth living. And, you know, sometimes you get so caught up in the what's next, you forget to kind of look back and think about the things that make you uh, who you are. And I'm a product of the Midwest in the United States and, you know, some of those flyover states in the middle. But having had a Midwest upbringing, I had a lot of exposure to a lot of different cultures. Specifically, I was born in Cleveland, Northeastern Ohio, uh, but my parents migrated from Mississippi. They were literally sharecroppers. They picked cotton. And that sounds so anachronistic, I know, but I feel like I've benefited from having one foot down in the rural South and all that that entails And then the fact that they came north with that six million African-Americans who pretty much fled the southern United States and came north and became part of the industrialization of the country. So I grew up in the midst of people who were Poles and Czechs and Lithuanians and from all parts of Eastern Europe in particular. That's kind of the makeup of Northeastern Ohio. So it seemed perfectly normal to me to have friends who ate everything from baklava to borscht. And I benefited from that, I think, because even as a kid, I was pretty precocious and had the idea that I would see the world and that being multilingual at some point would be important in my life. And that has colored the decisions I've made all along, including the decision to become a journalist. And I'm certainly a child of television, you know, grew up on it, weaned on it. But my parents used to call the one-eyed monster. Well, 
It turns out television was such an influential medium that I'm so grateful to have created a career where I was able to impact and influence. So I've worked not only in my hometown of Cleveland, but in Pittsburgh and then in Birmingham, Alabama as a television reporter and anchor woman and currently living in the San Francisco Bay Area and doing freelance documentary work. All of a sudden in 2020, the world has shifted so fundamentally that the whole idea of being a journalist is now dispersed. So anybody with a cell phone is now a journalist. And I think that's a good thing. But I also wonder if the democratization of the process hasn't just served to create more silos for people to live in when it comes to the information that they take in and give out. So Uh, My career as a journalist and documentarian has been so rewarding, but I also feel the earth move under my feet. I feel the sky tumbling down. It feels so challenging to be in the information business now, given what's happening in the world. So that's my story. It's how I found my way to journalism. And I'm now transitioning into doing live radio talk, which means taking off the journalist's hat and putting on the editorialist's hat, which is a wonderful thing too, uh, because it gives me an opportunity to have an opinion for a change. And it's a great time to be in the opinion business, particularly um, in the Bay Area where people tend to be very well-read, a very erudite, very well-written, very well-traveled. And so it's a career that's coming full circle in a lot of ways. Sure has. And you've also gone global because you were here in Bermuda, where you set us on the path to have um, public broadcast television as well. How did that come about? It was nothing that I had on my agenda. I was approached to be the general manager of an upstart television outlet in Bermuda. And it meant Again, that was the first time that I had actually taken off my journalist's hat and decided to venture into the management of a television outlet, which meant to some extent working from the ground up, from build out to hiring personnel to deciding on programming and dealing with the politics of a publicly funded outlet. And also, not coincidentally, in a country that had a parliamentary form of government. Coming from the U.S., I was accustomed to Democrats, Republicans, etc., and there being a, a back and forth in terms of policy making and implementation. Whereas in Bermuda, the party in charge was indeed in charge, and the party out of power were literally and figuratively speaking, backbenchers. But I learned that it gave the party in power an opportunity to actually enact the policies that they were hired to do by voters without interference from a minority party. And then if it worked, great, voters could bring them back. And if it didn't work, then voters could vote them out, but at least they had the opportunity to enact without interference from a minority party. So it was such an education. I waded into the politics of it. So in that way, it was unfamiliar territory, but it was very, very valuable as well. 
Yeah, you, you demonstrated agility and diplomacy. Those were the skills that really stood out for me. Yeah, what were the lessons learned? Like, how would you speak to that in terms of the impact you had as well as the influence? Because this was the first ever sort of government TV, wasn't it? Absolutely. And it was fashioned after uh, public television in the U.S., specifically WQED in Pittsburgh. And I was approached uh, to take on the general manager's job because my former agent is the general manager of W, or was at the time, the general manager uh, of WQED in Pittsburgh. And that station had been asked for its help in just laying the foundation for CITV in Bermuda. And it was unfamiliar territory because it also meant I had to take on what? A leadership role and be responsible for outcomes. In my general day as a journalist, we would sit in the editorial meeting, we would pitch stories for the day. Once you had your story, then it was up to me to figure out the, the best way to tell that story, um, because it was television, how to do that in pictures and words, and then to uh, present it, either at the end of the day or the end of the week, however long it took. And then, once that story was told, start again and become an instant expert on whatever the next issue was. But the experience in Bermuda and in a leadership role was an entirely different muscle group, if you will, to have accountability both up and down the chain because there were people looking uh, to me for decisions, how money was to be spent, how it was to be allocated, what the priorities were to be, to figure out what would best serve the population, what kinds of programming, and then to be responsible up the chain because at the time, the station came in under Premier Ewart Brown, and that made it intensely political, obviously, when it is a project that is presented by a politician. Was I prepared for the politics of it? Not at all. But it was certainly a learning experience. And I got to determine what is the best way to lead. And if I had to sum it up, I would say, the ability to have a vision and bring people along. Absolutely, absolutely. Yes. You were the epitome of leaning into a legacy. One of my highest values, top four values, is future generations. And the work I saw you do there was, um, I was just so proud to be connected with you as well. So could you speak to legacy leaning and future generations or the other impacts that you had that you were proud of? Yes, indeed. Well, it certainly helped that the station was physically located on the campus of a high school. And I frankly thought it was quite visionary for whoever came up with the original idea, thought it was a good idea to put it there because it literally created the opportunity for a flow of interns to come into the station. And that was one of the first things I implemented, not only because when you have a new station, the idea is you need bodies, you need things to get done, everything from filing to shooting video. And that was helpful for me, 
but it also helped to fulfill the vision that I had, which was always and ultimately to do a handoff. It was never intended for me to come and stay. My mission was to come establish the station and then create a succession plan, what was to come after me. And it was very helpful to see all those young faces every day. It reminded me, what is the plan for the future of the station? What do you see it looking like 10 years, 20 years from now? And so a lot of the programming that I came up with was child-centered. We had a show where that was, it was kids cooking, and it was based on a friend from the Bay Area who is a native Bermudian, and she had started a kids cooking school. So we ended up doing a show. We shot the show where kids were preparing their own meals. We did our, uh, their own newscast. We call them junior journalists, and they came up with their own, we shot, they shot their own video. Some of the segments that they came up with included things that were so specific to Bermuda, and I learned so much from it. One of the students proposed doing a what-would-you-do kind of segment. So we had a hidden camera, and the student deliberately kept dropping her groceries outside of the grocery store and wanted to see how long it would take for someone to come and help. And then we had an elderly person drop their groceries to see, hmm, will people stop and help? And it was interesting because I had to learn as a a big city lady from a big city in America, well, in Bermuda, of course, everybody stopped. That's just how it is. People stop and they help each other. And it didn't take long. In fact, people were scurrying. Someone's cabbage rolled down the sidewalk, so you had two or three people helping with the groceries. So it was a learning experience for me about the nature of the place where I was living, that in Bermuda, it's it's um, small, and people are related and intertwined in a way that I had not experienced before. So I was leading and being led all at the same time. I see you have a special interest in Africa as well. What led you to that area? I started by covering a story with Reverend Leon Sullivan. He was a prominent clergyman out of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. And he was famous or infamous, depending on how you look at his legacy, for coming up with the so-called Sullivan Principles. It was during the height of the apartheid pushback movement in the U.S., And he famously came up with a set of principles that would allow American companies to continue to do business in South Africa, even in the midst of the boycott. And those principles included um, hiring practices, investment, non-discrimination, etc. But because it was so controversial, it became an issue that Black media in the U.S. was very interested in covering. So I got my uh, first start by covering Reverend Sullivan's forays into South Africa. And then the every other year, the African, African-American Summit meetings that were held mostly in Western Africa. And, and from there, I began doing enterprise stories, including covering the civil war in what was then Zaire, now the Democratic Republic of Congo. So the stories became more and more topical and, frankly, much more dangerous 
literally covering war zones and kind of flying in under radar and, you know, just kind of making Americans more aware of what was happening on that continent. And now looking back, I could see the changes that were coming. I could see that Africa, with its natural and human resources, was going to, again, as it had under colonialization, it was, again, going to be a land and people that were fought over. So I felt really uh, like I was on the vanguard of covering those stories. But I also interviewed heads of state at the time, Lantana Conte of Guinea, Gambia, Gabon, Cote d'Ivoire. I even interviewed Nelson Mandela, but I also interviewed Jonas Savimbi. So, and people who would rightly be considered perhaps either freedom fighters or despots, depending on, on how you look at them. So I got to see African leadership up close as well, how they conducted their countries, what was happening in South Africa at the end of apartheid and the peace and reconciliation uh, gatherings and what that looked like, what kind of leadership comes after colonialization and war, what that looks like in a population and how you get buy-in from people. So it, it was a, a precious time in my career when I was covering those stories on a regular basis. That's a very powerful journey. What would you share with, with people looking to go into this type of arena? Well, you have to be nosy. You have to be the person who always just wants to know the why. And because we have been so much information at our fingertips, I've always felt, always, even before we had Google and, and all of those other resources and Wikipedia at our fingertips, I've always been that library person. I, I felt like I was probably born in a library. And so looking at the why of things, I find that everything is so immediate now that we almost never hear a predicate. What happened to get us here? And so you want to be the kind of person, if you're interested in a journalism career, you want to understand why you're that person who wants to know, okay, I understand what happened today, but what happened that got us here? you got to be nosy. I mean, I'm, I'm the person who, when I'm sitting at someone's desk interviewing them, if they have papers on the desk, I'm reading them upside down, surreptitiously, right? And truth be told, I'm also the person... If you invite me to your house, I'm going in your medicine cabinet, right? I just, I'm a snoop. What can I say? So, I'm just curious. <laughs> <laughs> it's a snoop thing. It is. And it's a natural instinct. And if you have it, journalism is such a, it's a wonderful career. Uh, I started out planning to be a lawyer. And they're very similar skills, quite frankly. My guess is you're probably snoopy too. That's my guess. You want to know the why as well, you know, being the person who asks questions, listens well, and then looks for the antecedents is something that is, is a skill set for either a good journalist or a good lawyer. This is true. And my super, super curious self has now got herself doing less discussed conversations on podcasts. <laughs> so, Renee, you're also giving back teaching courses at California Polytechnic Institute. Boy, talk about crisis communication and the needs in the current 
day and age. What are your corporate executives? Where, where, what are the tips? What are the learnings? Where are their skills needing improving? Well, it's almost inevitable that, as Andy Warhol said, there will be 15 minutes when the world will want to know what you think. And it happens to the average person more often than you might think. But it certainly happens to people in leadership roles. And so at Cal Poly, I teach crisis communication so that you'll know what to do when the media horde shows up at your door. Invariably, it's not because of something good. Uh, It's almost always something critical has happened. You are the CEO of a major hospital and you have an influx of COVID patients or you have a proposition on the ballot in your city and you're a mayor and you need the funding so that you can function and you've got to make the case, but you've got to make it compelling and explain to people why they will benefit from it. How do you communicate something as pedantic as that? How do you make it through the morass of information that people are constantly being bombarded with? And so I teach the skills on how to get media attention when you need it and how to deal with it when you'd rather not because there's some crisis happening in your organization. So Japanese auto companies have come to us. I also have my own company, Renee Kemp International. And in that capacity, I do much the same thing just prepare companies and their executives for what to do when the media shows up at your door. That's an invaluable skill because I quite agree with you. You never know when your 15 minutes of fame are going to be upon you with um, (laughs) and and how you're going to deal with it, whether you're going to be a guppy in the, uh, you know, in the face of, in the face of all these cameras, or you're going to impart some wisdom, which you do so beautifully. My gracious, so of all these amazing freedom fighters or despots that you've met, who really stood out for you? Actually, Reverend Sullivan stood out. I hadn't thought about him in years. It's interesting that, I, that he came to mind so, so readily because he was a very, very controversial character. And it meant that he took a lot of criticism from the African-American community who saw him as a sellout. If you're saying you're giving these companies Coca-Cola, Standard Oil, if you're giving these companies a way to stay in South Africa, you're a sellout. He said, we have got to find a way for these companies to remain because if they leave, then their influence is lost. Let's give them a way to be a positive influence in the environment. And so I watched him do what it was like shuttle diplomacy he almost felt like a secretary of state so to speak and that he would bring sides together i watched him cry in some cases when he felt that he wasn't getting through he would weep and he was in his early 80s even then and his daughter accompanied him and he was preparing her to take over when he was finished and And then I watched the exhilaration when you could see that year over year, more and more people started to attend these African, African African-American summits. And I saw him bring African-Americans to the continent and how important that was 
in the bigger picture. He had a bigger picture vision. And there were groups of African-Americans who came for the first time to the continent and they would get off of the plane and get down on their knees and kiss the tarmac and understand that they had come full circle in this, from being taken from the continent to returning and coming as investors and as imagineers. And so surprising myself, I'll say, Leon Sullivan might've been the most interesting character. Wow, thank you, Renee. I just really appreciate your contribution in the world, your impact, your influence. And as someone who has been an Emmy award-winning television journalist, was that early in your career? What did you take away from that? Well, I'm the, the first Emmy was for doing a story about the AIDS epidemic in Africa and the extent to which some of the same challenges were happening in the African-American community around the AIDS crisis. And I interviewed actors, uh, actor Danny Glover, whose brother had died of AIDS at the time when the A-word was scarcely being mentioned, when it still carried a tremendous stigma. And I also in, uh, interviewed the U.S. Surgeon General, who was David Satcher, an African-American who had a particular take on it. I interviewed them on the continent and then came back to the States and just discussed how disease is just one more thing that creates a bifurcated experience in America. It's presenting itself again in COVID-19, the disproportionate impact, the disproportionate impact of everything. You've heard the phrase, when America gets a cold, you know, a take on that is when, you know, African-Americans get pneumonia. It's been interesting to look at stories spanning the African continent and what's happening there, whether it's outsized influence from former colonial countries that plunge those nations into debt that is so unwieldy that decades and decades later, they're still fighting to get out from under debt. Does that sound familiar in everyday poor African-Americans' lives? Debt, the ability to move through the world in unencumbered, it's, it's minimized. And so the, that was the first Emmy that I won. But I did a lot of stories out of Africa that changed how I look at myself as a person who has one foot down in, you know, Africa, where everything started, where all of mankind's, you know, originated. And then in this extraordinary place called America, where it's the land of opportunity, but it, it has been instructive to get to see up close and firsthand and, and talk to Africans all over that continent, southern, southwest, I'm sorry, south, yeah, southwestern, southern, and western Africa. It's been a real journey, and it has enhanced my ability as a journalist to, again, look beyond today's story into how does this relate to a bigger context. That is such an important contribution because, you know, we don't get here alone, and we don't live here alone, and as you said, you know, everything is interconnected 
absolutely interconnected and you make a huge contribution in that space. Any last words before we wrap up, Renee? I just am so grateful, Michelle, that you and I reconnected because we had such probative conversations uh, over coffee and tea and lunch and sitting in the park. And, you know, it, we, I think that some of the things that we talked about, whether it's philanthropy or stewardship or social engineering or the environment, how to influence, how to futurize yourself, all of those are conversations that I've found so valuable over the years. And, and I continue to mull them and try to fold them into my daily decision-making. And I'm wishing you so well with the podcast because I think that to the extent that each one of us on this planet, each and every one of us, if we do that kind of work, that type of personal, mental, and spiritual work are bound to have an outsized influence. Our one little life can have an outsized influence. And that's the challenge I take, and it's the one that I offer. Thanks, Renee. Um, I definitely am very aware of my digital footprint and my digital exhaust and the fact that every podcast I put out there is is up for perpetuity and in the hopes of creating an archive of wisdom and the opportunity to have these less discussed conversations around leadership. If we don't start with leaders, I'm not sure what we're going to do. And leaders are there leading as examples for future generations. So I am, I am making a clarion call for visionary leadership to step up. And the only way I know how to do that is to step up and do the best I can by leading by example. Well, cheers to you. Thanks, Renee. As a steward of meaningful leadership in the world and wider cosmos, I have a passion for service through sharing wisdom, strength, and hope. Thank you for the opportunity to foster open conversation, discussions, and an exchange of ideas that create understanding and connection among diverse groups. Your support is valued. Please subscribe, leave a review, and a rating. More importantly, share with your connections. Thank you.